Hello. My name is Sarah Bennett, and I'm the general manager at Fighting Words, the creative writing center for children and young people. Fighting Words offers workshops and other programs in creative writing at locations all over the island of Ireland. All of our programs are free of charge and delivered by our amazing team of volunteer writing mentors. This is the third episode of the Fighting Words podcast, Story Seeds Edition. The Story Seeds Project supports young people to write their own stories with the aim of enabling them to begin to understand their life stories in relation to where they're from. Since March 2021, we've worked with primary school students, secondary school students, youth groups, and young adults with additional needs to create group stories, individual stories, poems, songs, plays, and screenplays. Our last episode featured our first group of secondary school students reading their work and in conversation with our workshop mentors and their teachers. In this episode, you will hear short stories by secondary school students from St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda County, Louth, Sandymount Park Educate Together Secondary School in Dublin 4, and O'Connell Secondary School, Dublin 1. Some of the work was recorded here at the podcast studios in Dublin City Centre, from where I'm speaking to you now, while others were recorded at the Fighting Words Centre in Dublin or at their school. I think that you'll find these stories inspiring and the conversations with young people to be thoughtful and insightful, and I hope you enjoy them. Hi, my name is Tawanda. Uh, I go to St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda County, Louth, and I'm 13. Hi, my name is Sophie. I I go to St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda County, Louth, and I'm 14 years old. Hi, my name is Kara. I go to St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda County, Louth, and I am 13 years old. Hello, I'm Elizabeth. I go to St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda County, Louth. I am 13 years old. Hello, my name is Valdemar and I go to St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda in County Loud and I'm 13 years old. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm 13 years old and attending St. Oliver's Community College in Drogheda. The Adventures of Paddy the Vampire, Paddy the Baddy, by one sage. The Ollies was a big school in Rathmullen in the centre of Drogheda. It had around 1,900 students in it, some good students and others not so much. It was quite a big school but was welcoming and all the people were very kind, most of them. There was a gym, cafeteria, classrooms, home and economic rooms, computer rooms, practical rooms, a big football field, surrounded by houses, and a running track. Paddy had been going to the Ollies since first year. He was now in sixth year. He was pale, with a red fade, tall, muscular. He wore grey Nike tech, an icon hat, and a Canada Goose body warmer. Aggressive, but sensitive. Paddy was a mysterious character. He had two houses. One was a modern house for when his friends came over. But really, he lived in a treehouse in the ruined, gloomy graveyard of St. Peter's Church. He snuck into the graveyard when the caretakers weren't looking. Paddy acted like a teenager, even though he was, like, 200 years old, because he was secretly a vampire and no one knew. So despite his young appearance, Paddy was the hardest man in Drogheda. When Paddy came in to school in the morning, the hall was nearly full of students on their way to the first class of the day. Paddy saw a group flocking around three other kids he hadn't seen before, but he couldn't really get a good look at them. He went over to where they were all standing. He's tall, like really tall, Ryan whispered to Adam in the hall. Hearing this, Paddy looked for himself and saw Chad, Jason and Dylan, a group of American exchange students. Chad was tall, with a blonde buzz cut, blue eyes and a scar on his eyebrow. He wore bracelets, necklaces and a backward baseball cap. He had surfer boy vibes and seemed super chill. 
Dylan was tall with curly brown hair, almost a mullet. Jason was blonde, tall and tan, with oceanic blue eyes. He and Dylan looked like Chad's yes man. Yeah, winning that football game was easy, gloated Chad as they passed Paddy. Paddy did a dramatic eye roll, then saw them enter his class. He suddenly felt jealous of their popularity. Paddy entered the classroom, sat down and went over his homework. First up was Matt's. Paddy was really good. So good that he was top of the class. The day went on as normal, except for the extra talk about the new Americans Paddy found out were Chad, Dylan and Jason. Chad and his friends gave Paddy funny looks and made fun of what they called his weird appearance. Paddy got upset, but not that upset because he knew he could easily get his revenge in seconds. Hey, you, said Chad. You couldn't be talking to me, thought Paddy. But when he looked around, Chad said again, Hey kid, can you hear me? Paddy pointed to himself and Chad, Dylan and Jason all nodded their heads. Yes. I use the Americans. What do you want? Paddy asked in an overly tired tone. Whoa, Chad said. We just wanted to talk to you. You look cool. Yeah, cool, said Jason. We just wanted to say you were really good in math class today. Paddy put on an American accent. We see maths class over here. Okay. So, on the next math, maths test coming up, could you possibly help us? Asked Chad. I'm kind of busy right now, Paddy replied. The bell rang. It was time for lunch. The teacher strongly suggested that Paddy take the American group to Centre to get lunch. Paddy reluctantly agreed. On the way to Centre, the group kept asking Paddy questions such as... Where are you from? And... How old are you? Yet Paddy stayed silent, not saying a word, just a shrug or a shake of his head. When they got there, Paddy finally spoke up and said, Right, away with you. Get what you want. They asked Paddy if he wanted to go in, but he said nothing and walked away to wait at the steps. The Americans walked in. They were confused as to why Paddy wouldn't help them decide what to get. They didn't even know what some of these things were, such as a chicken fillet roll. What is this? Said Chad. I don't really know. Said Dylan. They saw Paddy sneaking an uncooked chicken out of the deli. They decided to follow him. When they walked out, they saw Paddy scoffing the chicken, bones and all. After the shop, all of them walked back to school. Paddy in front and Chad, Dylan and Jason at the back whispering about what they saw. After school finished, Chad, Dylan and Jason asked Paddy to give them a tour of Drogheda. Dude, would you show us around town? Paddy wanted the Americans out of his way, and of course, as a vampire, there was only one way to do it. He brought them to Dominic's Park, just down the road from the Ollies, and then they went to Penny's, and he brought them to the Ark Cinema to watch a horror film, then to McDonald's. Jason asked Paddy if there was a church in Jada. Paddy said yes, and they all went to St. Peter's Church. They walked up the stone stairs and entered St. Peter's. This church looks old, said Dylan. Lots of statues and candles and seats, Jesus pictures, standard church, but with with a head in a container, a highly decorated container. The head looked burned and rotten. Chad asked Paddy, Why is there a rotting man's head in a golden container? Paddy shrugged and explained, This is the head of Oliver Plunkett. He used to be a saint. They followed Paddy out of the church, feeling very uncomfortable. As they were leaving, the head laughed quietly and whispered to Paddy, invite them to the graveyard party. 
The head could talk to vampires, but only vampires knew that. After going to the church, Patty invited the Americans to, a, to the graveyard for a Halloween party that night. It was nearly Halloween. Then Patty left them and went home. Chad decided to look around a bit more and explore. He got on his cruiser board and skated around town, complaining to himself about how bad and rocky the paths were. He saw a cat sanctuary and decided to go in because he was bored. He walked in and started browsing cats. He heard loud meowing and turned around to see a girl, Jessica, struggling to detangle a long-furred black cat. He stopped to watch her as the cat was hissing and trying to escape. The cat eventually got out of her arms and he caught it. Little did Chad know, Patty was able to change into a black cat, which was perfect because most people avoided black cats, so it was easy for him to spy on people without them knowing. Another young girl, Emily, came from behind the desk and took the cat from Chad and apologized for the cat's bad behavior. Chad had seen these girls in school and decided he could know them better. How can I help you? asked Jessica. I've come here to look at some cats, said Chad. Okay, what type of cat are you interested in? Hmm, by any chance, would you have a British shorthair? Yes, of course, we have everything. Follow me. Perfect. I've been looking for these everywhere, Chad said. Here we are. Take a look and tell me when you're done. Will you be taking the cat now, or another day? Nah, I won't be taking the cat. I'm on a school exchange. They're just my favorite breed. Also, I think I seen you at school earlier. Oh, the Ollies. Yeah, what's your name? Jessica. Chad. Jessica, would you like to come to a graveyard party? They were quiet for a second, but then Jessica said, Sure. They exchanged their Snapchats, and Chad left the shop. Emily turned to Jessica. Why did you say yeah? Jessica shrugged. I guess it was just something to do. Chad went home and texted Dylan and Jason about it. Later at the graveyard party, things were going well. Most of the people from the school were there. Some were dressed like dinosaurs, mummies, and Marvel characters, but most were dressed as vampires and witches. The graveyard was dusty and run down. The only time people visited was for parties. There were maybe 100 or maybe 200 gravestones, some newer marble ones and some older, covered with moss. Some gravestones had even been broken in half because of its reputation for parties and stuff. No one really got buried there anymore because it wasn't welcoming. Patty's old treehouse was in the corner. Lots of people thought they were myths, but vampires had been around for a long time. Sometimes vampires went to the graveyard party for food, but this was a secret, well kept in the vampire world. Chad, Dylan, and Jason arrived at the graveyard. Hey guys, come on over here, Patty shouted over to them. Patty had dressed up as a vampire, even though he was one, but no one knew that. He wore a white shirt and pants with a black coat, and a blood all over his shirt. Chad, Dylan, and Jason walked over to him. Sup dude, sick party, Dylan said to Patty. Oh, I'm not the host, Patty replied. What food is there? asked Dylan. Tato, said Patty. Tato? Let me guess, in America, they call it potato chips. A couple of hours went by. Paddy split up the group and lured Dylan away from his friends. Dylan was quite gullible, which made him an easier target. As they walked around, talking to, with loud music in the background, Paddy jumped at Dylan and a chase ensued. But Dylan saw an open grave and pushed Paddy into it. Meanwhile, Jason 
had started to pick a fight with Chad. Jason was jealous of Chad because of how he was blending in. Man, what's your problem? You've been throwing shade since we got here, Chad said. My problem? I don't have a problem, other than the fact that you've been stealing my spotlight. And you're acting like you're better than me, Jason said. Jessica and Emily walked past and overheard. They rolled their eyes while listening to the boys' conversation. Let's go over to the boys, said Emily. No, I don't want to talk to them, replied Jessica. Oh, come on, let's go. Oh, fine. Jessica and Emily walked over to Chad and Jason. I don't like being a bully, said Jason to Chad. If you don't, then why don't you stop? You're mean to anyone who comes near you, shouted Chad. Suddenly, Dylan came around the corner. Dylan, where's Paddy? asked Chad. I pushed him into an open grave. He's buried alive, exclaimed Dylan. Suddenly, they heard a familiar voice. Dylan, why did you try to bury me alive? shouted Paddy. Paddy, cried Dylan. Then Chad went up to Jason and threw a punch and Jason dodged it. As they fought, Paddy saw Jason about to throw a rock at Chad and said stop. Paddy jumped in to stop them but instead got hit with the rock in the face. Emily, Jessica, Jason and Chad almost couldn't breathe. But everyone was shocked at how quickly Paddy's face healed. Huh? said Jason. What? asked Chad. I'm a vampire, said Paddy in a quiet voice. To be continued. So the first question is, what did you expect from the project? Well, when we started writing the stories, I expected maybe us maybe writing a slightly thicker one or where it's just like compiled loads of mini stories from each classmate. Like a, a collection. Yes. Okay. Yes. And you? I didn't really, ex- like, I didn't really expect much. I just, I don't know. I didn't really expect that much. Okay. What did you expect from the project? I really didn't think of, like, what to expect, but, like, now that Elizabeth said that, I kind of think that she's right. So. And Valdemar? I thought, like, we'd just write a story, and but it turned out really good. Um, Alex, what did you expect? I thought there'd be a lot of varied styles of writing in it, but that all kind of dissipated through the proof editing. Um, what was unexpected across the few weeks that we worked on the piece? Sophie, what was something that was unexpected for you? Um, I kind of like, I thought it was going to be a bit shorter and the title, I, d- I didn't really expect that to be the title because, I don't know, it's just a really long title for a story, but I like it. I agree with Sophie about the title part. It is very long, but it's it's very catchy. Like, I really like it. And I I honestly expected the story to be a bit longer, but I enjoyed it. It was very fun. That's a great story. Okay. Have you written in the past? Not really. I haven't really written in the past. No. Do you plan on doing more writing now? Um, yeah, I'd say so. More encouraged now. Have you done any writing in the past? I have done one on my computer when I was 10. <laughs> it, was, it was about two missing girls and stuff. It's, um, but I'm, I feel like I'm more encouraged than I was back then. I feel like I would have, I would write more. I have written in the past. I've written a few short stories of myself, some slightly longer than others. 
but this has slightly motivated me to do more, and that's how I got to my like third short story that I wrote recently. Um, I have written loads of stories in the past, like for myself, like I haven't really shown anyone else, but um, I probably will write more, but I probably keep them to myself because I don't really... Why do you keep them to yourself? I don't know, I just, I like writing, but then I don't really like showing people because like I don't know if they're going to like it or not, so... So would you say you enjoy the process? Yeah, I like writing stories because like any idea that just comes to me, I can just write it down. Have you ever shared your stories before? I have. Not many, though, but I have. What kind of response did you get? Um, I got good responses, but, yeah, they were mostly good, yeah. What is your favourite character, uh, plot twist or setting in this story, Valdemar? Papai, like, he's pretty cool. And, like, he's 200 years old. Alex? Um, yeah, I'd say Paddy the best. He's quite relatable. Kira? Um, I'd say Paddy as well, but my favourite plot twist was Jason and Chad and their big fight. So did you learn anything new about your community or area when you were writing? Um, I learned about um, St. Oliver Plunkett's head in the St. Peter's Church. Yeah. Anybody else learn anything new? Um, nothing really big because I've been in this area for the entirety of my life. So it's just, I've kind of known all about this. So what was your favourite part of the workshop, Alex? Um, I'd say listening to how other people thought and looked at Drahada was very interesting. Looking at the final result. Yeah, I agree with Voldemar hearing the final seeing and hearing the final result being read out. It was just really good seeing all of our ideas mixed together. I think that when the teacher, JJ, gave us prompts to do, it was fun because of everybody's idea and when they were sharing to everybody in our little groups and everyone could, like, you know, pitch in and have their own ideas. I didn't really have a favourite in it it was it was really nice to like write a story and for it to like be published in that but i don't really have a favorite have you guys ever written a story together like that before no not really no, no. i have not, not i'm once. more not of a nope. so how do you feel about collaborative which is writing together so collaborative writing how do you feel about that experience now alex I feel like it went a lot better than I was planning. It's just amazing. Why? Because like people share all of their ideas and put it into one. I feel like it's a good idea, um, uh, just to have like different people's point of views and story ideas for like a certain story. I honestly thought it was going to be more problematic than it was, but it was really chill and it was just really fun to get to know other people's ideas and perspectives of how they view certain things. And it was really fun. I kind of had mixed feelings about it because I do like writing my own stories, but I do like the fact that people have their own ideas. But then I do like my having my own ideas to write in a story. So would you prefer the individual experience? Yeah. 
It was a gloomy night. Old Bridge Manor was massive. The grounds were beautiful, old, graceful. Inside, it was grey and unwelcoming. You could hear the floors creaking. Downstairs in the basement was a laboratory. It was large, dark, windless room. Fumes over silvery grey haze were travelling upwards to be sucked out of metal vents in the ceiling. Even so, the fumes were overwhelming and could be smelled a mile away. Lights flashed and flickered in the darkness, reflecting off tired eyes. A figure appeared out, out of the shadows, Johnny Hill. He was young, dressed in dirty, stained lab coat and carrying a beaker of a luminous green liquid. He had black hair and blue eyes, and a pair of goggles rested on his forehead. The sound of a beaker shattering on the floor. All my months of research down the drain, Johnny stared at the green pool at his feet, upset. He ran to a mirror, looked at his reflection, and saw that his feet had been splashed with the liquid. For a moment, he saw his feet flicker and disappear. He gasped. He ran his hands through his thick curly hair and his eyes lit up in shock when he realised that he had school the next morning. How am I going to go to school like this, he said. Johnny was in fifth year, attending St. Oliver's. He covered up his lab and going to Oldbridge Manor all the time by saying that he was a tour guide in the grounds. He had built the lab all by himself with his own money, money he had gotten from his granddad, who was also the previous owner of the manor. And Johnny had gotten his love for science from some of the old journals his granddad left behind. Johnny continued to work on experiments, but he couldn't stay focused. He kept trying to come up with a logical reason as to why werewolves existed. Meanwhile, in gloomy Drogheda, two silhouettes chased a werewolf through the dark, run-down town centre. And they chased a werewolf through an almost never-ending alley. It was poorly lit, with flickering streetlights and an electric box making noises. Suddenly, the werewolf disappeared into the morning fog. The sun had begun to rise. Disappointed and frustrated, a voice said, Ah, here, how did we let it get away? This was supposed to be my first werewolf kill. This was Jack Stone. She was 16, with sunset-coloured hair that glowed in the light like a phoenix reborn from its ashes. She had crystal green eyes like a tiger awaiting its prey, and was decked out in dark soft clothes that almost shimmered. Don't worry, you'll get plenty more chances, said Paul calmly. Paul Walkner was tall, middle-aged, with grey hair and beard and blue eyes. He was wearing a tight shirt with peeds and fizzy drink stains, and skinny jeans with rips on his knees. Like, that's a good thing, Jack said sarcastically. He was overly cautious, almost expecting something. It's the third time this week. How long until people find out about these hideous creatures? Paul was silent. He wiped his hand across his face and said, you're going to be fine. At the other side of town, past the trenches and dumps, was an old dusty house. The grass was huge. There were weeds growing and dead flowers were visible. Johnny swept through the grass as if it was a jungle. The house looked normal on the outside, but every step closer, you could tell something was off. It was beautiful, but abandoned, and gave up an eerie vibe. It was still, unusually still. No curtains moved. Even a spider on its cobweb didn't move. As Johnny was taken in the scene, he saw a man in the attic. He felt a cold chill go up and down his spine. Cautiously, he entered the abandoned house through the basement door. The house was chaotic. The floors creaked. Johnny grimaced as he took in the smell. It smelled like wet dog and old fish. He looked around suspiciously for any sign of life. He heard some rustling and flinch at the sudden sound. Then he heard multiple footsteps. Johnny muttered and looked around to see where he could hide. An old, withered closet stood at the end of the cramped basement. He ran over to it and silently climbed into the small space. He closed the doors, making the inside pitch black. His heart hammered in his chest, making his palms sweat. Please don't find me. Please don't find me. The words repeated in his head. A loud, energetic voice suddenly filled the room. Finally, caught you. John looked around and saw 
eyes gazing at him. A mouse. It crept on the floor and a big grey creature caught it. Ha ha ha, I've got it, yelled unfamiliar voice. A burp echoed through the house. Johnny pushed his hands against his mouth to stop scared whimpers from spilling out. His heart skipped a beat as another pair of footsteps could be heard entering the basement. He heard panting. I'm outnumbered, Johnny thought, overwhelmed with fear. Look what I got, the first voice said. Get that out of your mouth, another voice scowled. The sun glinted through the gap of an open window at the mysterious suspects, and Johnny saw a young werewolf panting and sweating with a stinky shoe in his mouth. A big dirty hand snatched the shoe out of his mouth. Whose shoe is this? exclaimed the other werewolf. This was Bobby Bricker. He wore a ripped rock and roll t-shirt, denim jeans, scuffed up boots, and a bloody white hoodie. He was holding a fizzy drink in one hand. Bobby had become a werewolf because his dad infected him. His dad was the original werewolf and had bitten people to build an army. Bobby became a chief when his dad, the Alpha, got killed by werewolf hunters, which made Bobby the Alpha. It also made him hate the werewolf hunters, Jack Stone and Paul Walkner. Johnny was petrified. His breaths were ragged. His legs became wobbly, nearly buckling under him. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. His instinct was to run, abruptly. He sprinted out of the closet through the mysterious, gloomy house. He dragged his body through all the hallways and staircases, stumbling over objects. Instantly, the floors shook as the wolves stomped through the house, their growls and heavy breathing echoing through the house. Johnny went through the front door as the wolves threw themselves against the windows, shattering glass. It was now dark and you could barely see the moon. Chased by werewolves, Johnny stumbled his way to the Allred Leisure Centre. In the distance, Paul Walkner and Jack Stone heard a loud, monstrous howl. They followed the noise, thinking it was their werewolf. Then they saw the werewolves chasing Johnny into the Aura Leisure Centre. Johnny was running out of breath. He broke down a door at Aura and slid past the barrier, followed by the werewolves. The Aura Leisure Centre was a big, sheltered dome. Through the double doors, there was a reception and locker rooms. Next to the locker rooms were the swimming pools a toddler kids and big pool. The big pool was filled to the brim with chlorinated water and the deep end was very deep. Bobby, in an angry voice, said, Where is he? Search the place and bring him to me alive. I can hear him. He thinks he's smart, huh? One idiot, I'll show him, said a werewolf. The wolves howled. Johnny overheard everything as he ran. He fell into a deep pool. The water of the pool flashed and he realised that he was invisible. He looked around to see werewolves all over the place. They were getting close. In a panic, Johnny dived under the water. Two wolves tried to pick up Johnny's scent around the pool, but with no luck. Wolves don't like the smell of chlorine, and it overpowered their sense of smell. When they didn't find Johnny, they went into the showers to look some more. Johnny sneakily hopped out of the pool and followed the werewolves into the showers. Before they even heard him, he sprinted through the showers, turning each one of them. Johnny felt somewhat relieved, until he heard growling, and a werewolf over his shoulder shouted, All clear, boss! Idiots! Bobby shouted and pushed a vending machine over in pure anger. We'll get him next time, the werewolf said and howled. Johnny, now no longer invisible, ran out of the emergency exit and hopped the feds into Ratmullen. The wolves gave a chase, but Johnny managed to lose them in the labyrinth of houses. The sky looked like a black canvas with grey smudges in it. The only bit of light was coming from the full moon laying in the sky. Johnny stumbled and rolled down a hill because of the darkness. He was barely able to see. He ran through the woods, his feet moving at the speed of light. He was trying so hard to be quiet. He knew they could smell him. His mind emptied and the only thought left was getting to his lab. Why now did it seem so far away? He sensed someone or something stalking him. 
Fear consumed him when he heard a growl and a big grey creature jumped in front of him. Its dark hair was spiked in all different directions. It was so large it towered over him. Johnny stared petrified into its cloudy grey eyes. When he tried to step back, he stumbled into a hard, broad chest. It pushed him and when he turned around, he found a similar creature. This one was blonde and lean but still equally as muscular as the other one. Johnny tried to calm his breathing and meet the creature's intense green gaze. What do you want? he asked but it came out gravelly and more of a whisper. One of the werewolves lashed out at Johnny and a gunshot echoed through the woods. The wolf went limp from the impact of the bullet and let loose a guttural howl filled with agony. The other werewolf perked his ears up to locate the origin of the gunshot. Johnny saw a shimmer of movement in the moonlight. Shadowy figures strode through that brush. Paul Walkner with Jack Stone trailing behind him. In Paul's hands was a sniper rifle with grey smoke coming out of its muzzle. The moonlight reflected off his bright blue eyes. Suddenly Johnny's vision started spinning. His mind went blank and he hit the ground in a faint. Johnny woke up in an unfamiliar place and saw Paul and Jack watching him. This place was none other than St. Peter's Church. It was dark and smelled like dog pee. Johnny gazed around and saw a ghastly sight. The desiccated remains of one of the giant mutts. This was the werewolf hunter's lair, where they tried to find the werewolf's weaknesses. They all talked and Johnny Hill explained his story. And then a figure appeared beside me. I didn't think anything of it until I saw that hideous fluffy tail. He cringed at the image. I started to run, faster than I could ever imagine, and realised it was following me. I ran to Aura, slid past the barrier and fell into the water. Then I realised something. The furry bees stopped. They don't like water. Paul interrupted. But how do you know they don't like water? asked Johnny. We'll explain everything, said Jack. With help from the werewolf hunters, Johnny had successfully saved Drogheda from the werewolves, and nobody had to worry about the werewolves randomly appearing in public. Or so they thought. What did you guys enjoy about your experience? I liked the teamwork. Like, we were putting small teams, and we enjoyed working in teams. We had fun. I liked the experience overall because it really, like, helped me to be better at teamwork and the experience was just fun overall writing the story. Um, I think it helped everyone socialise together and made new friends. It helped everyone, well I thought it helped everyone express their feelings through writing because not everyone in the class likes to talk a lot and they're pretty shy so when they all got to write and saw their words up on the board and everyone enjoying them and maybe disagreeing about if they liked the words or they didn't, I think it made them feel good inside. And what were some challenges? Well, for me, when I was writing some parts of the story, I was like, okay, let me end up here with three dots because I don't know what else to add. But when other people started adding it, and I was like, oh, that's good. That's really good. Let's keep that into the story. And some other challenges were that not everyone started agreeing on everything. And sometimes that made it hard for people to put their ideas out in case someone just like neglected it. So that's it. Yeah. For me, it was like just team. So like my teammate was like really smart like me. So... We both actually argued with each other, like like the words we we're going to use. So we kind of argued with each other to choose the words for the story. So that was some challenges for me. To me, I felt like some of the hardest challenges were coming up with ideas while we were writing and then editing some of the parts.
The fruity smell of cheap vapes and weed fills a dim, squalid, smoky room. The dimmer switch is set low. Clothes and old takeaway boxes litter the floor. Shag drapes and graffiti line the walls, while a dirty navy rug can be found underneath the debris. A broken 12-inch TV hangs loosely to one side. The unmade bed looks abandoned. The only other furniture is a couple of big speakers and a battered pull-out sofa. Drill playing from a stereo is interrupted by phone notifications and sirens outside. Frankie looks down at his phone, where another string of messages appears. His dealer is again looking for what he is owed. He squats down, lifting the loosened floorboards to reveal his and Skinny's hidden stash of cash. It is short by a lot, by at least a couple of thousands. Just then, Frankie's girlfriend enters the room. Keisha sees her man kneeing over the misplaced floorboard with a desperate look on his face. She wrinkles her nose at the stench. Ah, uh, come here. Let's think of it, Keisha complains before taking out her Victoria's Secret love spell, frantically waving it around in an attempt to mask the smell of the place. Skinny eyes Frankie before he t- shakes his head in anger and storming out of the room. Talk to her, bro. He shouts over his shoulder. Keisha kisses her teeth to show her contempt for Frankie's mate. Ah, uh, what's the problem here? Nothing. What's up with you? Frankie mumbles to her. His back still turned, his attention still focused on the dusty floorboards where money should be. My sister doesn't like you selling mapes and stuff. Keisha continues, annoyed at him for lack of attention. I have bigger things to worry about. Frankie sighs, finally turning around to face her. He carries on. And well, what you gonna do? Arrest me? Keisha ignores him and keeps going. Yeah, well, will you stop? She's going to tell my mum. Skinny returns, his arms full of glocks, blades and masks. He drops the contents on the couch, uncaringly. Keisha looks on in shock and as she sees her man pick up a machete and test its edge. Frankie, slightly embarrassed, looks over to Keisha. It's, um, not what it looks like. Frankie tells Keisha. We need you to drive the car. Why should I? She replies. Skinny jumps in and shouts. If you don't, I'll burn down your house. Keisha sees she does not have much of a choice and agrees to do it. Frankie explains to Keisha what they'll do. We go in the front door and rob your man. Then we head out the back and Keisha will be waiting for us. We then dip and floor, da- floor down the alley. We get away. Skinny says. I'll scope it out tonight. Frankie says. Look out for the cameras. Later on that evening, around 9pm, they drive up to the Maxall. They drive alongside to see who the cashier is. Keisha pulls up and parks out the back of the Maxall. She and Frankie wait in the car while Skinny scopes the Maxall. Skinny tries to look natural without looking obvious and he scans the area. The camera is fixed and looking down. There's a blind area. After planning on what they need to do, he heads back and gets into the car. Keisha is driving. While they're driving, Keisha tells them it's a bad idea, but they won't change their mind. Keisha says, Guys, I don't really think it's a good idea. Frankie and Skinny stay silent. Keisha raises her voice. Guys. Frankie responds, saying, We don't have a choice. Keisha says that she needs to go and speak with her sister, and she leaves the two guys at Skinny's house. After half an hour, Keisha returns, and Frankie and Skinny wait outside Skinny's house for her with her their bags full of weapons. They see a black car pull up. It's Keisha. You're late, Skinny said, dropping his bag in the trunk. Ayo, leave my girl alone. Frankie elbowed Skinny. Just get in. She raises her voice. They both get inside. The car has a strong scent of low spell. Ten minutes later, they arrive at the Maxall. Skinny walks behind Frankie as they walk up to the register. Frankie pretends to buy a chocolate bar. 120? The cashier said, looking at the register. Frankie pulls out a gun. Give me your money, all of it. He shouts. The cashier quickly presses a panic button. 
Skinny hops over the register and knocks out the cashier using the back of his gun, and Frankie shouted, Quick, we only have 15 minutes before they come. Skinny struggles to find the button to open the cash register. Which button? Skinny yells. After pressing many buttons, he successfully opens the cash register. They see the money in the till. There's not enough, man. There's only 2.30. Skinny said, looking at Frankie. What? Frankie said, looking shocked. Or effed. Skinny said, putting his hand over his head. They hear the distant sound of police sirens. Keisha bails. She panics and drives off. Cops are coming, Skinny. We gotta get out of here. Says Frankie, in a worried tone. They both rush outside to the screaming sound of Keisha's tires. Where the hell is that idiot going? Frankie shouted angrily as Keisha's driving away. How the hell are we gonna get out of here? Skinny shouted. We need a distraction, said Frankie. Skinny says, I know, as he runs over to the petrol pumps. Skinny grabs a jerry can, douses the pumps with gasoline, and makes a trail back to the back of the Maxwell. He strikes up a zippo. Frankie asks, What the hell are you doing? Skinny shouts, Run! as he drops the zippo onto the gasoline. It catches fire. Frankie and Skinny start running away as Skinny shouts, It's about to blow! The fire quickly makes its way to the pumps. They both run away from the Maxwell with their backs turned. The Maxwell blows up and they quickly turn around to the scorching flames. They head back to Skinny's house and find a handwritten note under the floorboards as they go to put the guns back. Skinny reads the note which says, Meet me here in Newgrange at sunset April the 13th and bring the money. KD. They recognise that the note is from the drug lord they owe money to. They arrive at Newgrange as the sun sets. A shadow slowly approaches Skinny and Frankie. As the shadow becomes more visible, Frankie and Skinny are left horrified from the image of a man holding a gun. They realise that the shadow is walking towards them. Frankie starts running, leaving Skinny behind. Skinny's in shock. He can't move and his face becomes pale. The shadow, who he now recognises as the Kool-Aid man, shoots Skinny's right leg and he falls to the ground, making it impossible for him to get away. Skinny tries to crawl away. The Kool-Aid man gets closer to Skinny, who is bleeding out on the ground. Oh yeah! The Kool-Aid man murmurs. Skinny turns around to see the barrel of the gun pointing to his face. He sees a flash before everything turns black. Hi guys, uh, thank you very much for coming in. Um, so you took part in a series of workshops on some Wednesday afternoons over the last kind of month or so. Um, and there's some creative writing workshops. I guess my first question is, um, had any of you done any writing yourselves um, before that? No. No, not outside of school. Um, or just, you know, basic creative writing activities in class. Um, I had a little bit from time to time. I would get some random motivation to write a book. Random motivation to write a book is that's some serious motivation. That sounds brilliant. And then, just kind of off the back of that, I'm wondering if you're going into this and you've done some writing before and some kind of just within school, and um, what were you expecting from the workshops? I had never previously done anything, so I had no idea that we were even going to do this. It was a bit of a surprise. Uh, so I had no expectations. I just thought we were going to some basic creative writing. Yeah, I think the whole class was entering with an open mind just on the basis we had no idea what to expect. Um, yeah, so I didn't expect that we would write uh, one story altogether. I thought we would do some separate activities um, just to improve our writing skills in general. And do you plan to do any more writing now? Do you think that you might kind of continue that? Try out some other characters or story ideas? Um, I'm not sure. <clears throat> Maybe... Uh, probably not. Fair enough, yeah. Other um, Well, there was definitely a lot of different ideas that went into the story, so there's a lot of them that could be fleshed out into their own pieces, almost. Um, yeah, 
And I genuinely uh, like writing stories, so I'll probably write something, yeah. yeah great. And then lastly, just um, as the kind of idea of this project is kind of writing about um, your own area and your own community, um, I'm wondering, did the workshops kind of make you think differently about your area or did you learn anything new about your area as you were writing? No. <laughs> Not particularly. I live quite far from my school, so there, uh, there wasn't too much to learn about my own area um, in the school. So, um, well, I um, during the workshops, I would move from hotel to hotel, so my area would constantly change. So I didn't really learn much about the area. Awesome. That's fair enough. Yeah. Well, that that can kind of lead into the writing in its own way. You know, you can introduce those elements, but. My name is Zoe and I go to Sandy Mount Park Secondary School. My name is Sean and I go to Sandy Mount Park Educate Together Secondary School. My name is Daniel, I attend Sandy Mount Park Educate Together Secondary School. The title of this story is The Lobster Plot. On a snowy winter morning, Harry was, as always, eating porridge. He was preparing for Christmas. Once he finished eating, he started decorating a Christmas tree with his parents, putting little sea creature ornaments, pufferfish, lobsters, and blobfish on it. Harry went up to his room to get dressed, but when he came back down, his parents were gone. All that was left were lobster claws coloured with blood, and also an old lobster plushie with the colours faded and a penny's tag. Harry ran from the house into the falling snow. There were bloody footsteps indented into the snow, going towards Sandy Mount Strand. He walked for what seemed like hours. On the way back, Harry noticed that the window to the room with the Christmas tree was open. That must have been how the intruder got in, he thought to himself. That was ten years ago. Harry is now sixteen. He's built like a truck, prepared if a lobster comes to kill him. He's known for being sarcastic and aggressive, but underneath the hard exterior, he's traumatised by the events of his early life, which haunt him daily. One day, Harry got a phone call. It was his boss, Jonathan Swift. You're fired. What? asked Harry. I know what you've done, said Jonathan. Is it because I shouted at the customers? Or is it for slapping that old lady? Or taking money from the cash register? Or is it drinking that carton of milk? No, but exactly. Harry put down the phone, slamming it so hard that it broke. Meanwhile, Jonathan, sitting tied up in a chair in his garage, looked at his captor, a man in a lobster suit, missing its claws. The man took off his mask. He put the phone back on the wall and said, Goodbye, Harry, while Jonathan struggled to breathe through the sellotape on his mouth. Harry walked down the road. It was pouring rain and he was crying. He was thinking back to the voice on the phone and he realised that Jonathan would never talk to him like that. The voice on the phone had an American accent, but Jonathan was British. Harry was so involved in his thoughts that he wasn't looking where he was going and, as he turned the corner at Sandy Mount Green, he bumped into Laureen, his rugby coach. Laureen is a very good rugby player. She looks and acts very young for a 72-year-old. She was coming home from Tesco, her arms laden with groceries. As a former professional rugby player, Laureen barely noticed when Harry bumped into her, but Harry fell straight into a puddle. Are you okay, pet? asked Laureen. She handed Harry a bag of frozen peas. What's this for? Harry asked rudely. It's your arm, replied Laureen, pointing at Harry's arm which had a massive gash. Harry thought back to, back to a few months ago when he had cut his arm open during a game and it got infected by the dirt on the pitch. Laureen invited him over to hers so she could clean the cut. Training had been on that night. Why weren't you at training? asked Laureen. Why do you care? said Harry, disturbed by all her cats gathering around him. Because I'm the coach and I believe in you, even if you are just a bench warmer, said Laureen. Walking from Laureen's house, Harry decided to check on Jonathan and ask if the call was true, and to beg for his job back. As he was coming to the garage, he noticed a strange vehicle outside. On the side was a lobster logo and the words, The Bingle Bus. 
Harry got a little anxious because of his cabarophobia, fear of crustaceans. But he wanted his job back more, so he went in through the back door. When Harry opened the door, he found himself looking into the, the beady black eyes of a giant lobster. Surprise, sunshine, said a familiar American voice, and then everything went black. Ears ringing, Harry woke up to the voice of Jonathan. Harry, wake up, Jonathan said. Harry felt blood dripping down his face from his nose. When he opened his eyes, he was in darkness. All he could smell was lobster. This is all very fishy, he said. You're not wrong, replied Jonathan. Meanwhile, on the other side of the garage, a young girl was picking the lock on the windows. She carried a baseball bat and was wearing a dark tracksuit. Two seconds later, the lock was open. Jonathan and Harry heard the noise. They thought it was a lob- the lobster coming back to kill them. When the door opened, all they could see was a silhouette of a figure in the narrow gap of light. Who are you? Harry whispered nervously. As light grew in the room, Harry and Jonathan saw that it was a girl and realised that they were in a slatted wooden cage with netting. Are you guys lobsters? She said sarcastically. Harry and Jonathan looked at each other in confusion. You're in a lobster trap, she answered. What are you even doing here in the first place? Who are you? asked Harry. I'm Patricia, and why I'm here is none of your business, she answered, and proceeded to walk over to a classic car and took out a lock-picking tool from her pouch. You're not planning on stealing that car, are you? Jonathan cried. That's exactly what I'm going to do, replied Patricia, confident she would get away with it, just as she had with many other crimes in her short 15 years. However, to her dismay, an ear-ripping alarm sounded. Jonathan took out the car keys and gestured to a button, which had a symbol indicating it would make the alarm stop. Maybe we could all just calm down and talk, he said, holding up the keys, showing her that he could make it stop if she agreed to negotiate. Suddenly, they heard the sound of heavy footsteps approaching, and the smell of fish grew stronger. The man in the lobster mask appeared at the door of the garage. "'What is that?' asked Patricia. The lobster man pulled up his mask, stared at the three figures before him, and said, "'I'm Dontavius Bingleton, cereal eater and lobster enthusiast extraordinaire.' "'You killed my father!' shouted Harry. "'No, Harry. I am your father.' No, cried Harry, you can't be. You killed my father along with my mother while they were decorating our Christmas tree ten years ago. I didn't want it to come to this, said Dontavius, more quietly now. I had no choice. After the divorce, your mother got full custody and took you away. I never saw you again. I wanted to take you with me that fateful morning, but you disappeared into the snow. Deep in contemplation, Dontavius closed his eyes. Patricia, seeing he was lost in thought, took her chance and ran to the lobster trap and used her lockpicking tool to open it. Harry and Jonathan leapt out and the three of them bungled the bingle into the lobster trap and locked it. They called the guards who came and took Dontavius away. It turned out he'd been wanted for identity theft and impersonating several lobsters. Thanks for helping us, said Jonathan to Patricia. You know you could put your skills to better use by working for me here in the garage. Harry already works here, so we'd love to have you join us. You won't be earning a lot, but it's honest work, and at least you won't end up like that crook, Dontavius Bingleton. Okay, replied Patricia, but on one condition, that I can treat you both to a nice meal to say thank you. Excellent idea, said Harry. I know the perfect spot, the lobster pot in Ballsbridge. Hello, my name is Henry, and my school is O'Connell's My name is Lennon, and I'm a four-share in O'Connell's secondary school. My name's Bradley. We go to O'Connell Secondary School. My name's Brandon, and I'm a first year of O'Connell's Primary uh, Secondary School. 
My name's Tony and I go to O'Connell Secondary School. So you were taking part in some creative writing workshops recently, uh, first thing on Monday morning. Um, your teacher, Miss Griffin, might have told you that you were going to be writing a story or that you were going to be doing some creative writing workshops. But I was just wondering, what were you expecting you were going to be doing? We didn't get told we're going to have to read yeah. the story in front of a lot of people. Well, just a few people, like so. <laughs> that was unexpected. Yeah, we didn't take it as serious as we would have if we knew we had to do this. Was there anything else that you were expecting from the workshops or was there anything else unexpected? I was very confused. What was confusing then? She just called me over and I didn't know what to do. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I was wondering, um, the story that you've written, um, do any of you have a favourite character or a favourite plot twist or a favourite area that is kind of... Jonathan Malone. The main character, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a character. Tell us a bit about no, Jonathan Malone. Yeah, and his cat. Russell. And his Russell. Yeah, so the, the main character? Yeah. yeah. Main character, probably. Yeah. Was there any kind of plot twists or anything that happened in the story? Any surprises that you liked? Oh, a villain, yeah. maybe. Wasn't trying to be like a wasp. A, a wasp. Yeah. Fighting a wasp, really. Um, was there anything um, new that you learned about your area? Or do you think somebody reading your story, what would they learn about your area? Uh, we did learn a new about and... They would have thought it's very weird. Like, <clears throat> if someone that doesn't live in the area read the story, read the story, they probably wouldn't want to go to that area. Which makes it sound very weird. All kinds of strange yeah. things are happening. Yeah. The name from the story is Jonathan Dreams. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jonathan Malone. He was 21 and lived on Portland Road. He lived in a trailer on the road and put bricks under the tire so that it didn't go flying away. Jonathan was five foot nine, with black hair and blue eyes, and he always had jelly babies on him. He was on the labour and sold strawberries on the side. Jonathan was saving up his money to open up a curry shop on Summer Hill for it. Jonathan's sidekick was a cat Russell, a cross between a Jack Russell and a cat. His name was Jonathan Malone Jr. Jr. had a cat face with whiskers and all, and his tail was a cat's. It was brown and white. His front legs were a dog and his back legs were cat legs. Jonathan found Junior in the lane off Talbot Street. He had seen a lot of meal deals from, from Little Luck. Down the lane, he saw Jonathan Malone Junior. He had a slice mark on his back and Jonathan rescued him. Junior was prone to violence and he liked playing with his bouncy balls. One day, Jonathan was taking his daily walk through Ballybuck. What a day, what a city, he thought to himself. The day was cloudy and windy and he was wearing a yellow raincoat in case of the rain when he came upon a bee from Kulak. Jonathan had a great fear of bees so he decided to swat the bee to get it out of his path but he ended up making the bee mad. The bee decided to dash right at him. It landed on his arm and stung him with its stinger. The bee died. Jonathan passed out and when he woke up he had wings and superpowers. He had telekinesis. Jonathan pointed at a bottle of water and it flew away. He was able to fly as well. He was confused but felt powerful. Let's get a curry roll and a bottle of coke, Jonathan said to Junior. He went to Nans in Ballybuck. It was busy as always and Jonathan had to scream his order. Two chicken balls, two taco sauce and a three and one for Junior and a bottle of water. Junior shouted, at Nans he saw a washman. I know what you did last summer, washman screamed at Jonathan. What? said Jonathan back nervously. I don't know how you found me. 
I'm coming back for revenge because you killed my cousin, said Wasman, in an angry way, and he threw his Nokia. <laughs> the Nokia broke Jonathan's nose because it was like a brick. What do you mean, said Jonathan, I killed nobody. What do you mean, what do you mean, said Wasman. Wasman stabbed Jonathan in, in the eye with a stinger and said, I am vengeance. Then he escaped by flying out the window. Junior had, Junior had powers to heal and a magic plaster that could heal anything. In a few minutes, Jonathan's eye was back like the old days. Then Jonathan stalled the curry roll and bottle of coke and went back to his house. In the afternoon, Jonathan took Junior on a walk in Malahoyed and asked him if he wanted to play catch. He threw a stick but by accident hit his hand off a nest. The nest cracked open and Washman's kid fell and damaged its legs and nearly got paralysed. A matchstick also fell out, which Washman used to light his cigarettes. It rubbed against wood and went on fire, burning the nest down. Jonathan ran away and camped out in his house. Washman was gone around bribing people to try find out the details of where Jonathan lived. Washman found Jonathan's smart on and went to our house. Washman said... I'm Jonathan's distant cousin. I forgot where he lives, can you tell me? Jonathan's ma didn't tell him, so Wasman threatened her. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Tell me where's Jonathan or I'll kick in your door. Hey, said Jonathan. His telekinesis powers told him that Wasman was threatening his ma, so he had shown up to his ma's house. This is between this is between me and you, Wasman, so keep me ma out of it. Jonathan's album rang out the door, ran out the door, swinging him up. And she hit Wasman and Jonathan by accident. Leave it out, she said. Get out of me, gaff. Wasman was about to shoot Jonathan when he heard Junior coming round the corner. All of a sudden, Junior's old owner, Raphael, came out swinging a machete. As Wasman was about to shoot, Jonathan threw a jelly baby. The bullet hit the jelly baby, deflected, and hit Wasman in the shoulder. Raphael was swinging at Jonathan when Junior jumped in front of it and got sliced instead. Jonathan hurried over and placed a magic plaster on Junior, who slowly healed. At the end of the day, they all agreed to leave each other at that and move on with their lives. Jonathan never got to open his curry shop, but he went to the Euromillionary and moved to Alabama. Thank you so much for listening to the Fighting Words Podcast, Story Seeds Edition. We would like to thank all of the fantastic young authors who created all of the stories, our amazing team of facilitators, mentors, and illustrators, the staff of the schools and youth services we worked with, and to you for listening. Visit our website, www.fightingwords.ie, for more stories and to find out more about becoming a Fighting Words Volunteer Mentor. You too can help children and young people to tell their stories at locations all over the island of Ireland. Thank you as well to our friends at the podcast studios here in beautiful Dublin City Centre. And until next time, goodbye.